to run in a business is also a skill. Just because you're a great cook or a great manager or a great sommelier doesn't mean you're going to be great at business. It's a skill that not everyone can have that. Not everyone can be a painter, right? You know what I mean? I really enjoy drawing, but not everyone can be a painter and make a living off it. Like not everyone, not every chef can make a living off running a restaurant and, and you shouldn't be able to because it's a skill. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to Robbie Bell. Robbie has City Larder, a fine charcuterie in Ivanhoe in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I caught up with him for the first time last year when we talked about the state of the industry. He's someone who's certainly been around for a while, has many thoughts about restaurants and about the other kinds of things that restaurants can be doing. And in a way, uh, it's as though he had some kind of sixth sense that something big was coming because he was positioned unusually well for a pandemic. Or do you think that's a fair thing to say? Hey, Robbie, and welcome. Well, thanks, Danny. Um, I, I just think I, I, I may have spotted a trend and it's just been accelerated, like a lot of people have, like e-commerce, for instance. Anyone that had an e-commerce site before this, that's been accelerated. And I believe, you know, and I seen a gap where I felt like restaurants were going to maybe get more into the retail market uh, moving forward. And I started positioning myself into that unexpectedly. The pandemic happened and I was always in, already in a position to take over that that sector. Well, not take over that sector, should I say, but I was ready to, to, to roll that out in that sector. Okay, so because with your charcuterie, you, you've already been distributing it to retailers around the city, haven't you? Yeah, five, yeah we've, so we've been going for five years with City Larder Charcuterie or just City Larder. We, yeah, and we built it just brick by brick, if you like, just me and my wife, Rebecca, just over the last five years. And now we've got distributors ourselves in Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia. Um, yeah, so that's been going for five years and now we're moving on to a new project. And tell me about the new project. So the new project is a distribution business, kind of what we're hoping to encourage restaurants to come to the to come to the retail market with whatever they're doing you can see people doing it right now a great example will be lello i feel like they're doing a, an amazing job untricot are doing an amazing job with their sauce with their their steak sauce so just to encourage more people to do that to create a second revenue stream third revenue stream in this sector um, and for us to give them a bit of advice or help them out and just and distribute with for them and use our experience that we've grown we've we've gained over the last five years with city ladder with um you know food labs shelf life testing packaging barcodes marketing branding you know dealing with retailers in the sense of like you know where to be positioned in the shop and how you know what they like when they could do deliveries these kind of things all them all them all that experience that we've gained over the last five years with City Ladder to take on brands and then distribute for them. Mm, interesting, because, yeah, the, the two that you just mentioned, so we spoke to Jason Jones from Entrecote just the other day and he yeah. spoke about his his famous green sauce that is now retailing, yeah. but I guess that was, a, you know, a business that was born from adversity, so something that he was like, okay, what can we do? Let's do this. And Lelo, I suppose, again, so Lelo, a pasta restaurant just on the corner of Flinders Lane and Russell Street in Melbourne, they're closed. The city's like, the city is 
a, a very difficult space and will be for some time. They certainly had a lot of corporate trade. What they they specialize in pasta and they've now packaged up their pasta and I've seen it in retailers near me in um, in Bayside, Melbourne. So they've certainly uh, yeah done the old pivot. Um, so I guess the difference with what with with what you've you've done and what you sort of have seen much earlier than other people is that those extra revenue streams and that ability to take something that you're doing as a chef and turn it into a product that you can retail. So you you mentioned some of those, I guess, pain points that people find when they embark upon this. And of course, so many people have embarked upon this in, uh, you know, in desperation over the past six or seven months. What are some of the things that people, when they think, oh, I make this delicious thing, what are the, what kinds of uh, blocks are there and pain points are there uh, that they might encounter shelf life is obviously really up there with it's one of the top top things you've got to be aware of because retailers need shelf life um obviously because it's got to sit on the shelf as opposed to a restaurant when you buy it you know you only want to make eight portions 12 portions 50 portions you've got x amount of people booked over the next few days so you know you're going to Mm. probably sell it you know where it's going to sit on a shelf so definitely shelf life and then shelf life testing making sure it's going going to the lab getting the right testing um that's you know that's super super important that you get all the right bacteria counts and and all, and all them kind of things done um barcodes it's not a hundred percent necessary but it's very you know it really it really helps with barcodes um packaging you know making sure you've got all the nutritional value all the nutritional information on there um make sure you've got your australian percentage and it's all correct that's a new thing that got in, mm-hmm. implemented i think it was back end of last year or middle of last year so it's got to have your percentage of australia you know these little things hasap i uh, you know big companies won't take um if you haven't got a hasap system in place just these these things really so someone who doesn't know what hasap is can you just give us a 101 on that yeah it's a, it's a it's a it's a system that you you get someone you can do it yourself but you get someone in it's a hazard analysis uh document if you like or a, or a program that you would get in you get someone in it's a lot easier it's not cheap it, you know it costs around about ten thousand dollars to get it done they'll they'll analyze your your space see how you see how you work see if the, the area is clean just like a general uh, a general overhaul of your premises make sure that the hand sanitizer all the different things are there the, the chemicals you're using are correct that make sure you've got um uh, like vermin control, make sure you've got your grease trap getting changed regularly, all them kind of things. But then on top of that, then they will write a program on each specific item that you're selling. So, and it's the way it's the way from start to finish as the product comes in. So the raw meat arrives. Where does it come through? It comes through the back door. Where does it go from there? It goes onto the bench. What do you do from here? We break it down, and then what do you do? You put it into the fridge. Then what do you do? Then you mince it, and then what? And it's just that stage, pop, 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 all the way through. And then how do you cook it? We put it in the oven. You know, one hour fifty. De- uh, sorry, one hundred and fifty degrees for one hour and forty minutes, and then we bring it out. We probe it. We put it on the bench. We let it rest. We do, do, we do it that. We bring it down to temperature at this time. We check the temperature after two and a half hours, after four hours. Make sure all these systems are in place, and then he'll say these are where these are the areas where you could go wrong. Just make you aware of them, and then it gives you things that you got to fill in, sign a bit like you do in the with like fridge temperatures in restaurants, mm-hmm. but just more yep. in depth. So. 
the 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 terrains went in at this time. There were this temperature when they started getting made. There were this temperature when they went into the oven. There was this temperature when they come out of the oven. There was this temperature after they come out of the oven after two hours. There was this temperature after four hours. You know, and just and just monitoring everything, batch numbers, recall. Make sure you've got your recall system in place just in case someone finds something. You know, someone's sick off batch number seven seven six three. How are you going to call back 7763? How are you going to get all them back from the stores? You've got to do recalls, mock recalls, these kind of things. <laughs> it's so comprehensive. I guess you, it's the kind of thing that if you want to get food onto an airline or something, that they make, that sort of stuff's compulsory. Yeah. If you want not, big content, not that much yeah. food's going onto airlines right now, let's say, yeah, but yeah, the, it's yeah. any... <laughs> yeah, I guess any of those big companies where they need every every I dotted and every T crossed, then you definitely need your hats up. And the shelf life testing I find really interesting. So is that something that has to be done in real time or is there a way yeah, of accelerating well, that process? You can do accelerated shelf life testing if you you know if you if you need it quickly, but generally not you know it's more expensive and generally you don't. You know, we, we we've only ever done that in five years. I think we've done it once because we need the product to market really quickly. Um, it was actually when the pandemic hit, we wanted to get the meatballs on the on the uh, on the shelves quick, so we did an accelerated shelf life testing. But generally, what you do is you will you will give them. Let's say you want to get five tests done. So that would be like week one, always week one. When they take it, they'll say, "When did you make it?" We made it on the first of January, for instance. They'll they pick it up, they'll check it on the third when, when, by the time they get it to the lab and that's their baseline. They'll see it's got, you know, 3,000 whatever it is. I don't even know all the technical terms for the bacteria, yeah. but 3,000 whatever it is. And you'll say, okay, can you test it after four weeks and then after six weeks, after eight weeks, after 12 weeks? And then they'll then they'll test it all the way up and they'll see how, how the bacteria grows and then uh, and then they'll give you a shelf life test from there and say, we recommend that, you, you, that it only goes on the shelf for this amount of time. But then what also mm-hmm. what you've got to do is you've got to do it yourself. We run the test at the same time and then we taste it after that as well. Because even right, though it, okay. it, might, it, it might be safe, you can eat it, but it might just be a little bit sticky or a little bit slimy. There's nothing wrong with it, but yet you still don't want the customer to get it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, so yeah, I love it. it's worth running the test yourself. Yeah. Okay. That's, that is, yeah, very good advice. And packaging is such a big one. You know, I guess there's so much stuff that's suddenly being put in packets and some of them seem to work and some of them are not so practical. Uh, So how do you consider packaging with these kinds of things? Well, well, our terrine, well, we've got a few, we've got labels. So the the labels for the terrine bags are really simple. You know, it's just, we were very lucky. Um, Andrew Merch was the guy that designed them and he was, you know, he, he, he nailed it really easily and it works really well for us. Um, the jars are obviously a little bit different for us. We get, we import the jars. Um, we've had problems with, with them, with, uh, supply, supply chain and, and things like that. Then we've got other bags for the cook series stuff, which are, are more designed and like the, the bags are actually, you know, they're on the colour. It's all like the colours in the bag, so you're not adding a mm-hmm. label. So there's, you know, packaging is a bit of a, a bit of a nightmare to be honest. For design, <laughs> yeah, you've so got to make sh- you've sorry, wait, you've, so you've just got to make sure. Excuse me, everything's right. Do you know what I mean? Like once you've printed off thirty thousand of them, you don't want to realise that, you know, terrain spurt with an F or something. Do you know what I mean? Which if I was doing it, it <laughs> definitely would be. I, I remember hearing. 
early in the pandemic about um, when there were, you know, shortages on supermarket shelves. And one of the stories I heard was, I can't remember what the product was, but they got the jars from one country. They got the, they got the, maybe the lids from another place and the labels from somewhere else. And it was just like the, perhaps it was just the lids that they couldn't get. Um yeah, and so they couldn't make their product. So I think that we've, we've, we've realised that we're susceptible to some of those supply chain issues in, in a way that we never really have before, haven't we? Definitely. I've got, you know, so we, you know, we, we import our, our jars from China. That's, that's basically, that's where a lot of people get the jars from because it's probably their manufacture. Not many places manufacture glass jars, especially in that size. And because of when the pandemic hit, um, we, we had a massive lull and then we had that all that panic buying and we, we got absolutely hammered on, on the jars. And we had to, we were going to run out. We, I estimated we were going to run out by about three pallets by the time we could get the next shipment here. So we had to fly, fly three pallets of jars from China in the middle of the pandemic and to get three pallets of jars from, the, from China to Melbourne into Ivanhoe cost us over twelve and a half thousand dollars. Whoa, was yeah. it worth it? So we didn't make money on any pate for a few, a few weeks. But you know, that's I would rather I'd rather not make any money than not have the supply. You know, that was my fault. So you know, that was our yeah, interesting. That. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and what about barcodes? How how do you go about getting a barcode? So you. You know what you do? You find someone that does them. You don't try and do them yourself. That's the first thing that you do because it's it's really it's not easy to deal with these people, and especially if you're small. So you want to go to a company or someone that does do barcodes and knows it inside out. And I think we use I think it's GS one that we well it is GS one that we use. This isn't really my forte. My wife Rebecca generally looks after all these kind of things because it involves a lot of emails backwards and yeah. forwards and that is definitely not what I'm into but um yeah I know we use GS1 and I know we found someone to do it for us because Beck was pulling her hair out trying to get it organized and um, yeah yeah I guess with a lot of these kinds of things and you know as as um as you're talking more about it it's like you know there are some things that you want to do yourself and I think it's amazing to do that's such a good idea to do that shelf life testing from a you know taste point of view and there are some things that you want to outsource so obviously you're running a business where you people can outsource the um, sales and distribution to you but if someone wanted to do their own sales and distribution what kinds of what kinds of things would you suggest? You know, I've got my great source, the, the shelf, I've got my shelf life sorted out, got my barcode, got my great packaging. Um, now, how do I get it out there? Well, let's just say the pandemic's over or at least stage four or, you know, into stage three where you can get out and about. Let's just look at it that way, obviously. Um, you know, you've just got to get your boots on the on the floor and uh, on the streets and go knocking on doors and, you know, there's many ways you can do it in from marketing perspectives. You, you know, you can get in, you can do influencer marketing. You can try and get people to cook with it at home who've got good Instagram followings. You can use Facebook Marketplace. I'm sorry, Facebook ads, um, mm. and use that as a marketing tool. Make sure you put it in the right people. Obviously, Instagram, Facebook, all these kind of things. Get get a website going promote that SEO, all them kind of marketing tools. But then on the same hand, try and get yourself into some good stores. If you believe you've got a great product, it's all ready to go. You've got all the shelf I've tested, everything's ready. Then try and get into some high end hit, aim pretty high because then you can leverage off them, them stores. You know, you can then go to smaller stores and say, look, we're in such and such. We're in David mm. Jones or we're in, 
you know, wherever it might be, uh, La Mana yeah. or you're wearing Boccaccio's, whatever it might be. And then the smaller independents will then go, oh, well, if it's in there, you know, and just leverage them. That's a good technique Yeah, to sure. Yeah. And are there any product types that you think are under-supplied? I mean, it feels like there's quite a bit of pasta around. We're obviously not going to compete with you on pate and charcuterie, but are there any <laughs> – um, what, what is there that I'm like, okay, I want to make something, and it could be a bunch of different things. What's going to – what do you reckon is going to walk off the shelves? Look, I've, you know, I've had my eye on spice nuts for a while, if I'm totally honest. I've, I've, mm. I've, I think that set, I think that side of the market, I think has got has, has got a good bit of movement in it. You know, I've had my eye on that for a while. Um, animal fats, animal fats. I, I feel like um, the keto diet. I'm, I'm watching America and listening to America quite a lot. I can feel like the keto diet's starting to make its way more into into our well, our culture, but our food culture here mm-hmm. um especially with the gym so animal fats lard duck fat you know tallow or dripping whichever one you want to call it um i think that there's, yeah there's, there's, there's movement there as well i shouldn't yeah, be giving these I away i'm that. just giving freaking businesses away of what's going on <laughs> well don't worry you've, you've got a head start on everybody but i love that idea about duck fat because i was um confeing some duck recently and needed some duck fat and i couldn't find anything local um and you know my duck was beautiful free-range local duck and i just thought oh i want some i want something that's um of you know similar caliber and i couldn't yeah. find anything local so that yeah i think there definitely is a hole in the market there um not to say that like there's thousands of people con being ducks at home but perhaps if the fat was available more of us would be um, yeah yeah for, for sure and you know it's great you know it's it, yeah i could go on a bit about duck fat and, and and pork fat and stuff but yeah it's you know it's a great it's a great use of the fat mm. so robbie i mean uh, when we spoke last year it was when i was doing a story about restaurants and uh, you know all the stuff around compliance and wages and uh, all that good stuff and we spoke a lot about your role at Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne from I think from 2010 you worked for there for about five years um now you're not focusing on restaurants at all can you tell me about you know what it was like then and why you're you've got a different focus now Look, ultimately, I would still be in restaurants. There's no two ways about that. I would still be in restaurants had I not had a baby. That, I've got to say that. Like, restaurants, I, I love restaurants. I love them. You know, I've been in them since I was 15, 16 years old and I, all the way till I was, like, 35 and, you know, working hard in them and, and really loving them and loving the ambience and different styles. I love everything about them. But having a baby, I just wanted to give more time to that I just didn't want to be working weekends and I didn't want to be working nights and I wanted to be there on football and going to swim in and all these kind of things so that's why I um I come away from come away from the industry in that area um and what was the, what, what was the question what was it like what is that what you said sorry I, I, got, I got a bit confused well I, oh, I, I mean when well, I probably asked two questions at once, which isn't very helpful of me. Um, but I guess when we spoke about the Rockpool days and it was in the context of, you know, working hours and working over the hours and you said that you were pretty, you know, you just it was just how it was. You were really happy to do it. You didn't feel like you were being taken advantage of. You felt like you were on a career trajectory that was your, your it was you were on your own train and this is what you wanted to do to improve. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I suppose that, you know, on the flip side, you're saying that as much as, 
that was that's the industry that you love and you can see a place for working long hours if you want to get to a certain standard in a certain time or work in restaurants of a particular caliber then yeah. it's it isn't really compatible with um the life that you want for yourself now how do i mean how yeah, does how do restaurants how does it work? How does the restaurant world work then? Well, look, I, I've, I've been scratching my head about this for, 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 for months and years, to be honest. Like, you've got the, rea- the reality is you've got a, a period of time to get yourself into a position where you can do that, right? That's, look how many chefs are, on, are in the market. You know, let's just forget about the, the, all the, Euro, the Europeans and whatnot going home, but there's a lot of chefs out there, and there's only, only, only so many great jobs so many jobs where you can take the weekends off or the nights off or or whatnot do you know what i mean like so it's up to you to get yourself into that position to be able to take that time off build yourself a business build yourself a restaurant or whatever but there's not many people that can do that so i have been scratching my head thinking what can people do once the once the finish like you can't be 55 working on the line like what can we do as an industry to support them people you know and this is maybe one option that can build a, a business on the side um yeah you know that i guess i i don't really know the answer to that question really do you know what i mean like you've only got so long is 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 the is is what i've been coming to and thinking about quite a lot and if you don't get yourself in that position then what are you going to do yeah it's a really tricky one isn't it i mean so the re- the culture in many restaurants has changed where people are doing fewer hours and um, they, that, that overtime isn't necessarily part of the culture in places where it once was. Do you feel like, you know, what, do you feel like we can have the same kinds of restaurants where people aren't doing the same kinds of hours? Well, I think I think we can, like, but I don't, I don't agree with that anyway. That hours thing, like you should be able to do as a human what you want to do. Don't forget, nothing. These aren't these restaurants aren't prisons. First of all, do you know what I mean? Like mm. at any point you you're allowed to leave. You, it's not a sentence. So if you want to work them hours, especially for free, I've worked many months for free, months on end for free, and it, and I feel like it, it, I I didn't feel like I was getting taken advantage of. I was felt like that the the ratio. To what I was learning, to what I was giving was was fair. I don't think that's you know. I I think that I was thing. It, it, you should be able to make your own choice. Do I think restaurants can survive the same? Well, obviously, if you need more staff, well then that's another cost taken off the bottom line. So there has to be there's going to be something that has to give. In my opinion, I think the the, the prices need to go up. I think that is a fact. Um, I feel like weekend rate should be up like you know i've said it before to other people that you wouldn't get a plumber to come out on a saturday night at six o'clock when you've got a you know your shower's leaking you wouldn't expect him to charge the same as you would on a tuesday morning at 10 o'clock do you know like you wouldn't do that the same as if you if the airlines were operating you wouldn't expect Mm. to go you know peak season easter holidays kids on holiday kids you know finish from school the price wouldn't be the same as like a wintry, you know, November. Well, that's European, but a wintry, a wintry month. It's going to be cheaper because it's less in demand, supply and demand. And maybe that's the same in restaurants. Maybe on a Sunday lunch, it's going to, if for the same dish, it would be cheaper on a Tuesday afternoon. Do you know? Excuse me. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe that's the that's the goal. You know, you, mm. that, that, that there's a, there's maybe room there. The prices I keep hearing that the 
since the GST came, prices haven't changed. It's like I don't know much about that. It's just what I've heard. I think that the, the, the prices of that, the prices need to be looked at for mm. sure in restaurants. Um, you know, but ultimately, I think restaurants are also incredibly diff- difficult places to run. And rightly so, they should be difficult to run. There's a lot of moving parts. And, you know, you're trying to create something really special. And not everyone can do that. That's interesting that you say they should be difficult. Um, like, because they are complex. I mean, can you talk a bit more about that? Why, why should it be hard to run a restaurant? Well, it, it should, because it's a skill. It's an absolute, like, this, it's, it's a, you know, to run in a business is also a skill. Just because you're a great cook or a great manager or a great sommelier doesn't mean you're going to be great at business. We've seen this in many, many occasions over the last few years where, sommeliers or chefs have gone to open restaurants and, and, and it hasn't worked out for them. So that it's a skill that not everyone can have that. Not everyone can be a painter, right? You know what I mean? I really enjoy drawing, but not everyone can be a painter and make a living off it. Like not everyone, not every chef can make a living off running a restaurant and, and you shouldn't be able to because it's a skill, right? Mm, interesting. I mean, I think a lot of skilled restaurateurs have been sorely tested over the past six or seven months. And, you know, we're definitely not out of the woods, especially in Victoria. It's going to be a super tricky environment well into next year. And I think, you know, we're, everyone's wondering what's going to happen when JobKeeper, uh, when the tap's turned off there. Uh, what do you think it's going to be like? Uh, look, uh, when JobKeeper gets turned off, well, you know, I think it's going to be a bit of a shit fight, isn't it? Let's be honest. I think it. I think it is. Like, I, it's really hard to say. Are the, are the are the customers going to come back to the to the market and 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 everyone might be rammed and it's all good and well, but it depends how how far in the hole you are. You know, like it depends how much you've over leveraged. For instance, like if you if you've been having to pay half rent in the city. For you know, and God knows what your rent must be. If you know, if it's a hundred thousand a year, two hundred thousand a year, and you've been having to pay half that for this amount of time, have you gone too far? Like, have you got enough money to to pay people out? Have you got enough money to like? Let's say you don't take all the staff and it doesn't build up. Have you got enough to pay all the holidays and all the rest? Of it? Maybe you owe suppliers, and you when it all closed down. You didn't, um, you didn't, you didn't pay the supplies because you couldn't, and the supplies are supporting you. But you maybe owe thirty grand to suppliers, and have you got the money there to pay them to get them supplying you again? Do you, do you know? It's so complex. It is incredibly, incredibly complex, and there's so many moving parts. Like, you know, I think the people who are on the on the the restaurateurs that are on the front line, who are in the businesses, at, you know, there on the stove or on the floor. I think they've got a, probably a better chance than someone that, that isn't doing that, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I guess because perhaps they can be more nimble in decision-making and perhaps there's a few, a few not as many layers of the business to, to work through, to be responsive to whatever it is. that Exactly, exactly. They can make decisions, you know, from their gut feeling and, and if they've had a successful business before, I'm sure well, for definite they'll be able to make them gut them gut decisions again they're on the floor so they'll probably reduce labor costs because they as a business owner can probably do 
two to three jobs that you'd have to normally employ someone. Do you know what I mean? You can probably host, bloody run a section and do accounts. Do you mm. know what I mean? If you don't have, if you're not on the, you're not there, you probably need someone to do all three of them jobs, which is three salaries that the other person doesn't need to pay. There's a lot. Look, look, think about a restaurant and how many moving parts are in it. It's bloody, it's, it's amazing that anyone even gets any food, let's be honest. <laughs> it is. And that's why we need to be so grateful when Isn't we can it? go back to restaurants again. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to just be spilling with gratitude about the fact that, yeah, there's some magic that can get food onto a table in front of me. And all I all I need to do is pay for it. Like, it just seems like a, yeah, a very, um, an easy transaction from, from my side. Um, and there's so that, much going on to get it there. That's a nice word to use, a gratitude. Maybe we'll... Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. I'm no, you didn't. Off. But maybe gratitude, maybe the the word, you know, maybe maybe the the the, the Joe public, the customer, will start thinking about that, and and maybe it will be an opportunity to put prices up, and people can see that restaurants are, are not these jails where we where the Thai chefs open whip them and make them work all the you know slog the guts out they're actually really beautiful places that create real memories true memories memories where you've maybe your engagement or you've been getting told you you know you're having a baby or who knows what mm. the, the occasion is this is where you go to, to celebrate these things you know and they're amazing places and people who are working in them are amazing people that love to give hospitality it's a hospitality industry they love to make people happy they love to create food for people to really enjoy and have memories over do you know what I mean? Mm. And, you know, people who generally, in my opinion, are whinging about hours and, and, and all these kind of things, whinging, you know, obviously there's a limit and whatnot, but a lot of people that really want to do that, want to use their creativity, their art, their, their, you know, it's in the blood. These these people are really special people, right? Do you know what I, I mean? I honestly think it's one of the saddest things about the pandemic and about the closure of restaurants is that people are not able to exercise that part of themselves, which is that giving part, that 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 um sh- that sharing, that generosity, that sharing, that being hospitable. When I look at a closed, dark restaurant with chairs on the tables, that's 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 what you know tears my heart apart because I think it is for a lot of those people those real hospo lifers it's you know that is who they are and um yeah I think it's it's uh to be able to be back in restaurants and to be to be able to be part of that experience um where someone's able to exercise their art on you over an an evening of you know food wine and and chat and all those good things I think it's going to be very moving and I'm yeah gratitude is going to be a a big part of it from my end anyway yeah uh Robbie it's um so I think you know what we're seeing is that that extra income stream is going to be very important as restaurants gear back up. I don't think that um, people dining at home is going anywhere. I think that's that's probably here to stay. So I think even if a restaurant doesn't have um, a product line at the moment, do you feel like, you know, the, the time is still right to build one up and build one into the business? I do. Yeah, I do. I do. I really do. I think you should look at your restaurant and see what you do and what your signature dish is, or what you know, what 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 it is that you guys that you do, and and think can the, is this something that could go to the to the to the retail market? You know, it could be a salad dressing. You know, it could be the ducker. It could be a marinade, a rub. Uh, excuse me. Um, it could be a sauce. It could be you know heaps of different things. 
you know, and think about it. Think about what you, it, it could be cocktail. You know, you've seen a lot of cocktails that's coming and that's, they're doing really, really well. Mm. Um, there's, yeah, there's heaps of things. Yeah, I, I do. I think that, that it's it's a good option for people to to get into. You know, like it could be a, a, a pizza topping sauce. You know, you know, people who make home meat pizzas. You you just provide the sauce. It could be. You know, it's just endless, really. If you think about what you do in your restaurant and what you make, a burger topping, I could keep going, do you know what I mean? Like a burger yeah. sauce, it's just endless, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I guess even if you don't um, have it distributed in, into other retail stores, it's just something that, you know, if you just have it um, available for people to buy as they leave, it could be an extra 15, 20, 30 bucks on top of a, um, a meal. And that's brilliant, hey? Definitely. I guess it's like in that in that angle, what you're talking about is what it could be, it's, it's almost like a bit of merch, you know, people do the t-shirts, the the caps, the aprons, but that you know that it also could be another 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 piece of merch. Effectively, you know the seasoning, like the, just mm. the salt and pepper. You might just get someone a a core packet and make you a salt and pepper, and it's literally just your salt and pepper. You make a little blend up or whatever. You put it on all the tables, and you put your branding on it, and you just sell a nice little salt and pepper shaker. That's it, you know. And you never know where that can lead to, you know. Yeah. Brilliant. Robbie, I reckon you've shared so many good ideas. I hope you haven't given away your whole business to us today on Dirty Linen, but it's fantastic to have a chat here where you're at. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best with City Larder and really um, thank you very much for coming and having a chat to me today. No drama at all. Thanks for having me. And um, look, uh, yeah, I, I, my heart goes out to everyone in the restaurants and whatnot and we'll be there to support you when you open, that is for sure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.